Hello, this is Mike Dobson welcoming you to another Anesthesia Compass podcast. Our guest today has travelled widely, he's worked as an expedition doctor and also served a number of missions with Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, in Papua New Guinea and Jordan. In 2012, while still a trainee, he set up the Developing World Anesthesia course in Bristol, a course which has now been adopted by the Royal College of Anesthetists. I also noticed that among his publications, he's been featured in the Sunday Times Colour Supplement. Married to Amy and with two small children, he now works in Bristol as a consultant anaesthetist. Ben Gupta, welcome to the Anesthesia Compass podcast. Hi, Mike. Nice to be with you. Hi, Ben. Now, you spent two terms with MSF in Papua New Guinea. What was MSF doing in Papua New Guinea? Was there, was there a war or something on that we didn't hear about here? Uh, it's a good question, Mike. Everyone always asks that, actually. Um, no, there wasn't a, a war as such on in Papua New Guinea. What we had in Papua New Guinea at the time and what there still is was really high levels of intertribal violence, um, unfortunately coupled with very high levels of sexual and domestic violence as well, some of the highest in the world, actually. Um, and then... On, on top of that, in keeping with a lot of uh, less economically developed countries, you've got very, very poor healthcare uh, provision outside of the main cities. So I was based out in a very rural area in the central highlands part of the country in a very remote hospital, about five hours away from the next nearest hospital. Uh, you could only travel during the daytime as well. So we were, we were very isolated out there. And there were two arms to the project that I was working on. There was a, a medical arm uh, which looked after the psychological and medical needs of the, the victims of sexual and domestic violence. And there was a surgical arm to the project, which uh, in terms of medical personnel, I had myself and, and one surgeon. And uh, we were looking after all the uh, surgical patients, obviously. It's a very small hospital there. Um, it had about 30 beds, one little operating theatre, which MSF had, had refurbed, which was completely out of commission in, in, until that happened. Uh, and I think one of the defining features, really, of, of the hospital and the place we were working was the fact that we were so isolated. I only touched upon the fact that we were uh, five hours from the next nearest hospital. But at the time, there was no internet there either, which is sort of seems a bit unthinkable to most of us nowadays. And there was also very little no landline phones and very little access to mobile phone signals as well. So we really felt like we were on our own out there. So um, you live and work in Bristol now. I imagine that the sort of patients that you came across in Papua New Guinea were a bit different from the typical Bristolians. Uh, yeah, very different, very different. So th the bulk of the work was trauma, and that's trauma by and large sustained by uh, domestic violence and intertribal warfare and the most of the weapon the most common weapon out there is the machete uh, probably followed by spears axes those sorts of things um, so a lot of head and limb trauma not too much penetrating trauma mostly sort of blunt, blunt type trauma to limbs limbs and heads and so forth but alongside that we also had of course the normal surgical emergencies that you see anywhere in the world the appendicectomies and normal kind of cuts and scrapes and things that you, you get, especially in a, uh, a country of subsistence farmers. And then, of course, uh, obstetrics, as my 
one of my neurosurgical colleagues at the hospital up the road likes to say obstetrics it doesn't matter where you go in the world you can run but you can't hide there's always obstetrics so that that sort of made up the mix of patients um the the other thing that sort of made them very different i think to the patients that we see in bristol was that thinking more about the trauma patients here was that we saw the we got the patients very late so often they traveled many hours over ground carried on bush stretchers made of uh, bamboo and, and things like that um so they were very cold very shocked by the time we got them it's a state that required really decent resuscitation before we did anything which we don't normally see in bristol um and of course uh the anesthesia was was very different for these sorts of patients as well I, i'm not sure whether to touch on this too much now but it was basically a mixture of general anesthesia with halothane from an oxford miniature vaporizer ketamine and uh, and regional anesthesia the, the, the other slightly interesting thing that i wasn't aware of before i went out there was that in bristol i'm used to sort of seeing patients once or perhaps twice but being a the only anesthetist there and and b coming to realize the fact that mostly trauma patients come to theater multiple times sometimes dozens of times because all their injuries are dirty they all get infected so they come back repeatedly day after day after day to have um wounds debridements and so forth and that was something i hadn't sort of considered or, or thought about actually so you were the only anaesthetist there how how did you get on being on call all the time without a break uh yeah that was fairly tough uh, at times uh, the work stream there was actually we were we, what worked to our advantage to a certain extent was the fact that it was very dangerous to travel at night i mean that doesn't work the advantage of the patients necessarily but um the people seem to just when the sun went down people sort of seemed to stop fighting so and it was also very dangerous for them to travel overnight because of all the the bandits and as they call them um so we didn't have too much at night time, which made it manageable. But when you're the only person, you only need a little bit at night time before you can get quite exhausted. So, but I think that that's one of the most difficult things when you're working with MSF is managing your your time, managing your your own tiredness and fatigue levels. Because when you work in the UK, systems are in place that do that for you. It's against the law for you to work more than a certain amount of time. You know, even if you are looking tired at work, perhaps within your shift, people will 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 help you but when you're out on your own and there's only you you have to manage that yourself and you realize quite early on i think especially in a project when you're there for a period of time that it's a marathon not a sprint and if you don't set some some boundaries and look after yourself a little bit then you can sort of crash and burn fairly quickly indeed now i have said to people in the past that uh, in a situation like that sometimes giving the anesthetic is is the easy bit we all get frustrated at times, but were there things that frustrated you in Papua New Guinea that are different from the sort of frustrations that you find at home? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, Mike. I, I, I thought that, you know, within about a month of being there, I thought I, when I went out there, I was very worried about how I was going to manage the anaesthetics and so forth. And in fact, that turned out to be the most enjoyable, straightforward part of the whole thing. Um, you're right. Uh, in, in some ways, there are many less frustrations than working in the NHS in, in the UK. When you're working in a very small team, you can be very nimble. There's no, there's not much red tape in your way. So if we felt that the way we were doing things in theatres and on the wards wasn't working. The surgeon and I could uh, put our heads together with the with the ward and theatre nurses, make a change, and act it the next day and see if it works. And if it didn't, we'd try something else. And it was a real pleasure to be able to work like that. Actually, 
I mean, th- th- there are there's always frustrations. I mean, I think the, it's normally the non-clinical stuff that I've found on MSF projects that can frustrate you. Specifically, working in very small teams in close proximity for long periods of time can get difficult. When we're working in the NHS and we have a list with a surgeon that we perhaps don't see eye to eye with, you can grit your teeth, get through the list and and go off home at the end of the day. But there, I was there for six months and the same surgeon was there for the majority of the time when we would do our morning ward round together, go to theatre, have lunch together, go back to theatre in the afternoon, have dinner together, have a drink after dinner, play chess, go to bed. Then when we're on call... The room, the walls between the rooms are so thin that he just used to bang on the wall and tell me when there's a case it needs to go to theatre. So you can imagine you can get sort of sort of pressure cooker type environment at times when there's there's very little room to escape. Thanks. You've already touched uh, some of the positive things, but was there any other things that you'd like to tell us that were particularly enjoyable or satisfying or worthwhile that uh, that you got involved in? Oh, lots of it. I mean, the uh, one of the nice one of the most enjoyable satisfying things we achieved when I was there actually was the fact that there were in amongst all the the larger trauma there was a steady stream of people with cuts on their hands and feet no one really wears shoes there and people work in the fields all day and these people seem to come in repeatedly with with quite nasty abscesses and these were a huge burden on on the theatre people coming in for INDs and washouts of their hands and hands and feet and um we realised, I realised quite quickly that these really didn't need to all go to theatre. So what we did is we we trained up the theatre nurses who were already trained to do minor surgical procedures. We trained them up to do wrist blocks with uh, lignocaine. And over a few weeks, we we um, we did that with real patients and, and so forth. And after a while, they got extremely competent uh, at doing this safely. And so we set up what we called a minor operating theatre um, where they uh, over the course of the day would anesthetize people's wrists then sit them in the corner wait until their hands were nice and numb and then do the inds and that was a really satisfying thing to do because it was increasing the skill set of the local uh staff which they enjoyed and also took a huge pressure off the main operating theater so that freed it up to concentrate on the um on the on the bigger stuff thanks Anything that you learned there that you brought back home and applied to uh, to day to day work here? Oh, lots. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, I think the first thing I learned when I was there is don't don't underestimate what anybody is is capable of doing. Uh, I, I was struggling to. I remember struggling to cannulate a, a small child, and one of the cleaners said, "Why don't you ask Lucy to do it?" Who was one of the um, the lady that did the. Uh, she, she did a bit of theatre nursing, but she also did the sterilisation and stuff. So I, I sort of, at my wits end, asked her to do it. She just embarrassingly slotted it in first. I, was like, I had no idea that the sort of widened skill set of people and I've kind of makes you not underestimate people, I think. I mean, in terms of technical things, I think it makes you much less worried when equipment fails. It, you know, you, you, you rely heavily on the equipment in the UK, you know, perhaps rightly. But it makes you, I think it makes you a more competent and safe anaesthetist because equipment does fail and you remember to look at the patient. Um, and most of the time that, that's, uh, that's what you need to do. So. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Now, uh, your latest trip with MSF, I think you were in Jordan. 
very different situation. Tell us about some of the differences, both in terms of, of what came through the door uh, and what your role was on the team. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was a, it, on the surface, it was quite a similar sort of project because it was a trauma surgery type project. But, um, and I went out there thinking this will be fine. You know, I've done it, done it for nine months in Papua New Guinea. And in fact, it was a very difficult uh, project for me. I found it very challenging to begin with. It was instead of being in an isolated rural hospital, MSF had uh, sort of brought back into commission an unused theatre, which was within a working government hospital. So quite a busy sort of small district government hospital in the north of Jordan. And because we were in that setting, we actually had access. We were like we paid the hospital for access to some of their facilities when they weren't using them. So we could use their MRI scanner if it was free, for instance. And we had access to their blood blood bank within limits. So by MSF standards, it's a sort of luxury uh, project with in terms of drugs and equipment and so forth. But the thing I found difficult was the patients and I was quite used to sort of single injury type patients, although people in Papua New Guinea had quite awful injuries, you know, traumatic machete amputations of limbs. What I hadn't quite appreciated is that actually patients with a single injury are, are relatively straightforward to diagnose and treat with. Patients who were coming over the border from Syria had multiple undiagnosed injuries from blasts, which I found far more difficult to to sort of deal with and, and, and treat. And not only that, patients in PNG used to kind of come in one or two at a time, whereas we would often get an ambulance full of Syrian patients over the border. And so they would all come in at once. And then there's a difficult job to try and triage them because we only had one theatre. Uh, and they were probably arriving in even worse states, incredibly shocked, sometimes unfortunately arrested um, than, than I saw in PNG. So that made it difficult. And the, the intensity of the work and the amount that came at night was also really difficult in, in, um, in, the, in the initial stages because I was on call every night for about the first month. And in fact, I got myself extremely tired and, and in a bit of a, a pickle uh and had to take a, a little bit of time off to recuperate but that, that's just another story really um the other the other challenging thing was you, you sort of think it must be most difficult working completely on your own as an anaesthetist what i've discovered is that's possibly the most relaxing way to work uh maybe that's just my personality <laughs> type but in jordan i was responsible for a small team of uh, there was I was there full time, but other anaesthetists would come in. Local trained anaesthetists who had jobs elsewhere were coming in to help us. Um, so doing perhaps one or two uh, shifts a week uh, and managing that 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 team was also extremely challenging as a, an outsider, someone not from that country, someone not necessarily familiar with the, the ways of working in that country. So that was a kind of added uh, stress and burden, certainly in the beginning part of the project. Uh, now, there may be some people listening to this uh, podcast, Ben, uh, who are thinking, well, maybe maybe I could volunteer to go and, and work with MSF. Um, what, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe thinking about doing that for the first time? Um, I think there's a few things I'd say. What, one is that I think you need to be um, you, you need to be happy to work on your own uh, and potentially in quite extreme isolation. Um, by that, I don't mean that you need to be the most experienced anaesthetist in the world who knows absolutely everything and can do absolutely everything, because I don't think they necessarily equate. You just have to realise that you will have to make decisions without 
anyone else's input at times and you have to be able to live with those decisions and they don't always they, they don't always have to be correct no one makes correct decisions every single time but you do have to make decisions and you do have to live with them so i think you just have to be sort of comfortable with that really um the other thing that's worth considering is when you're wanting to go away is whether you want to go and do in inverted commas or, or whether you would rather emphasize the teaching side of things and i just mentioned that because by and large msf are sending anaesthetists into places where there aren't anaesthetists uh, because if there were anaesthetists they would employ locally trained anaesthetists so you're by and large going to do of course it, there's always teaching to be done and that's often the most satisfying part of, of any project but if you primarily want to go and do capacity building or teaching then msf may not be there'd be other organizations that might be better suited um on a more practical level i'd say if you do go away on a project with msf it's really important to find out as much as you can before you go i mean this applies to any project of course but it's it's forewarned is is forearmed and knowing that they have an oxford miniature vaporizer or a gloss vent or whatever it might be just enables you to talk to the right people and do a bit of the correct research before you go and lastly i think it's really important to have if you can some sort of support network set up before you go most places nowadays have mobile phone signals so and you can normally find somebody who's willing to be called when so that you can sort of say help i don't know what to do with this patient uh, on the clinical side of things and it's also really useful to have somebody uh, who you've spoken to beforehand you might be able to offer a bit of uh, psychological support if you've having a really stressful time and you just want to ring up and have a chat to someone who can kind of sympathize and understands a little bit what you're going through. Thanks very much Ben for sharing your experiences with us today. Next week Ben's going to be talking about the different clinical techniques you need to master if you're going to do the sort of work that he's been doing. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us this week. We hope that you'll subscribe to these podcasts and tell your friends about them. You can subscribe and download them from wherever you normally get your podcasts. If you're interested in knowing about future courses when they do restart, then keep your eye on the websites of the University of Oxford and the Royal College of Anaesthetists, where you'll also find details of the online course that's happening in November this year. For, for now, from Ben and from me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.